Welcome to the 260th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm glad to welcome vaccination expert Samantha Vanderslot to COVID Calls. She's part of the Oxford Vaccine Group. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 15th, 2021, there are 2,975,875 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Death toll in the United States from COVID-19 Today is 564,387 people having lost their lives from that disease. In the United Kingdom, 127,161 deaths have resulted from COVID-19. In Australia, 910 have died. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is HIV AIDS researcher David Katzenstein dies. This is from Stanford Medicine News Center by Bruce Goldman and appeared on February 4th, 2021. David Katzenstein, MD, Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases and Global Health at Stanford Medicine, who spurred advances in diagnosing, treating, and preventing AIDS died January 25th of COVID-19 in Harare, Zimbabwe. He was 69. Katzenstein was a trained virologist, clinician, and tireless advocate for global health. He was widely praised for his energetic push to bring better, cheaper methodologies to bear on HIV AIDS prevention and treatment in middle and low-income African countries, where over a 35-year period, he spearheaded numerous life-saving projects. Imbued with a passionate belief in social justice, David Katzenstein had an outsized impact on the fight against HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa, said Lloyd Minor, MD, Dean of the School of Medicine. The Stanford Medicine community is grieving his untimely passing. We will miss him immensely, he said. Colleagues described him as a renowned laboratory scientist, brilliant thinker, stellar mentor, and overall optimist. It's hard to visualize David's face without a smile on it, said Julie Parsonet. MD, Professor of Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology and Population Health. Parsonette, the George DeForest Barnett Professor in Medicine, arrived at Stanford in 1989, as did Katzenstein, and worked closely with him on a number of projects dedicated to reducing HIV transmission in Zimbabwe. He was creative, electric, Parsonette said. Ideas would just come shooting out of his head so fast you couldn't keep up with him. As longtime associate director of Stanford's AIDS clinical trial group, Katzenstein oversaw influential clinical trials of AIDS antiviral therapeutics. He was one of the first researchers to call attention to the problem of antiviral drug resistance in Africa. Born January 3, 1952 in Hartford, Connecticut, Katzenstein earned a bachelor's degree in biology in 1973 and a medical degree in 1977 both from the University of California, San Diego. He interned in internal medicine at the University of New Mexico, where his work with indigenous tribes instilled in him a deep desire to combat infectious disease among underserved populations. He completed his residency in internal medicine at UCSD in 1980, along with a fellowship in infectious diseases there in 1981. In 1982, he was appointed Assistant Clinical Professor of Infectious Disease at the University of California, Davis, and in 1984, he accepted an Assistant Professorship of Infectious Disease at the University of Minnesota. In 1986, he departed for Africa, 
where he served as a lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe's Godfrey Huggins School of Medicine. Between 1987 and 1989, Katzenstein worked under Anthony Fauci, now chief of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as a senior research fellow at the Food and Drug Administration's Laboratory of Retrovirus Research, Biologics Evaluation and Research. Katzenstein began his tenure at Stanford in 1989 as a clinical assistant professor of infectious disease, as well as the associate medical director of Stanford's AIDS clinical trial group. With his colleagues, he conducted multiple studies, ultimately leading to the approval of life-saving antiretroviral drugs that greatly improved the survival of people living with HIV. From that point on, the problem of HIV drug resistance occupied a significant portion of his academic endeavors. David's major strength was in his scientific imagination and his sharing of it with friends and colleagues, said Thomas Merrigan the George E. and Lucy Becker Professor of Medicine Emeritus, who as then chief of the Department of Medicine's Infectious Disease Division, recruited Katzenstein to Stanford. He did this in a wonderful, warm manner, which made him a great mentor, friend, and leader of our group. In a hiking accident in Big Sur in 2009, Katzenstein plunged 90 feet into a ravine, sustaining a compound leg fracture that required 17 separate surgeries. The bone became infected and never fully healed, Initially wheelchair-bound, he walked with a cane for the rest of his life. Undaunted, he resumed his work with characteristic zeal. His desire to cure and prevent infectious disease in developing countries grew. With the success of long-term antiviral drug treatments, AIDS was now relatively well under control in the United States, Parsonet said. But those drugs were expensive. David was driven to find ways of bringing their benefits to less affluent populations, and he missed Zimbabwe. Katzenstein moved to Zimbabwe immediately upon retiring from Stanford in 2016. As director of the Biomedical Research Training Institute in Harare, he introduced state-of-the-art molecular diagnostics and disease monitoring to Zimbabwe's community-based treatment programs and trained people in clinical research. He remained extremely active and continued publishing papers until he fell ill with COVID-19. Katzenstein co-authored nearly 300 peer-reviewed papers and patents, awarded to Stanford for the use of the molecular technique called polymer chain reaction, or PCR, in identifying HIV-resistant variants, determining the choice of AIDS therapies, and monitoring patients' response to antiretroviral drug combinations. In 2000, the Doris Duke Charitable Trust awarded him its Distinguished Clinical Scientist Award, a five-year grant underwriting his efforts to foster affordable treatments for HIV-infected women in Southern Africa. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Samantha Vanderslot. Samantha is a university research lecturer at Oxford Vaccine Group, University of Oxford, UK. Her research is about people's attitudes and behaviors towards vaccination. She draws on perspectives from sociology, history, anthropology, global health, and science and technology studies. She is particularly interested in public policy and media representation as well as making comparisons across countries and time. Samantha Vanderslot, thank you for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thank you for having me, Scott. I've been following COVID calls, so I'm glad to join on one. You get the award I give from time to time for staying up late to talk on COVID calls. I really appreciate you taking that time. No so I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you are calling from and, and how the situation is there with the, both the pandemic and also the vaccine. Mm. So I'm, ca I'm calling from the UK and I think there are some similarities here to the US and um, other countries where restrictions are starting to lift, um, even if indications aren't showing that that's um, necessarily a good thing to do. Um, in the UK, the cases and deaths have been dropping quite sharply, so um, you can see why the government has wanted to uh, loosen those restrictions now. So this week, um, the shops that were non-essential have reopened, um, pubs and restaurants have reopened for uh, dining outside and drinking outside. Uh, so this is all very, very recent. Uh, I haven't really gone out the house this week so i don't know but i'm sure i'll find out later on uh, how that's all changed 
the, the idea is that people have, that there was a threshold and the case rate has reached that now, it's dropped to that point and that people's fatigue is, can't be pushed any further? Well, actually, in the UK, it was interesting because we had this roadmap. So there are certain dates where um, as long as the indicators, like you say, were looking like they're going in the right direction, we'll, we'll, we'll um, follow through with those particular dates to loosen restrictions. So that's, that's what we had for Monday this week. And then the next one will be the 17th of May when uh, the restrictions loosen further. You can go indoors and things. And if someone wants to be vaccinated today in the UK, can they do that on demand? Um, no, so it's by age group at the moment and um, over 45s have been um, asked to book their vaccinations. Uh, I think the site crashed on the first uh, hour of that being announced. So, so there, there is demand, yeah. So is that done through some sort of a centralized system or it's done in a decentralized way, the booking? It's centralised. So um, the one benefit here of having the national health system is that um, everything is going through one system and you don't have to deal with different providers. Um, it's being organised quite centrally. That will come. I mean, Americans who have been calling all around, chasing around to different drugstores, mm. uh, showing up, haunting places at closing time to find out if they can get a dose that's left over. The idea that it could be centralized is uh, is a little astounding, I think. Yeah, I, I think Kim, you can see the countries that have these centrally organized systems ha have found the rollouts easier. Um, yeah, and the so UK's you, done quite well. You shared with me that you also had COVID and that you've had uh, some, what you might call long COVID uh, symptoms. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing your experience with us. Yeah, so I had COVID in October and it was, um, uh, like a lot of people, quite a, a long illness. Um, I, you don't tend to get over it very quickly. Uh, and then the symptoms really just lingered. And for me, that's mainly been headaches and fatigue. Um, and then throwing some shingles last month as well for, for fun. How did you find out that you, that you had it? You just, the symptoms presented themselves and you thought this is it? Yeah, I, I, I had symptoms and they, they weren't so obvious. So I didn't have the cough, I didn't have the fever, but I had a strange headache. Um, and I thought this is a bit weird and I know the headaches um, are a sign of COVID. So um, I thought I'd get tested. Uh, and it didn't initially show that I had COVID, but my my partner he was positive, so I I um, isolated as well. And it was only afterwards when I had an antibody test that I found that I definitely did have COVID. I see. And as far as the long COVID symptoms go, is it very hard to get treatment? I mean, I don't even know what kind of treatment you would seek, but are you able to? be seen by health providers and, and have that uh, dealt with? There is help in the UK. So you can go to your general practitioner. Uh, so that's like the family doctor, your local doctor, and they should refer you to a, a long COVID clinic if it's um, necessary. At the moment, I've been personally, I've been trying to um, just see how I'm going and try to rest. Um, and it does seem to be improving very slowly. So uh, I'm hoping I won't need to have any any treatment following up. Well, thanks for sharing that sort of personal story of your own experience. You are a person who's studied vaccination from many different vantage points. And I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about the work you've done pre-COVID, mm. um, the kinds of cases that you've been interested in, that you've written about, I know you've written about polio a little bit. So I'd like to hear sort of some of those reference points that you had coming into your thinking about COVID. I think I'll start way back with my PhD because um, that offers some parallels with uh, what we're looking at at the moment. So uh, what I researched was uh, neglected tropical diseases. So uh, a bunch of diseases that um, affect the communities in um, poorest regions of the world. And uh, these diseases had been neglected, as the name would suggest, for a long time. They didn't have a lot of um, attention and funding. And what I was interested to know was um, how, how did this story change? So now they are getting a lot more attention. Um, there is funding directed at them. 
so it's a, really quite a diverse group of um, parasitic, viral, bacterial, protozoal um, diseases. And um, there had to be quite a huge advocacy campaign to raise their profile. Uh, and um, kind of the ultimate sign uh, was being included in the sustainable development goals uh, as, as diseases that would be um, given attention. Uh, so that was my my PhD. And, and people weren't really that interested in talking to me about that subject, I have to admit. Um, so <laughs> when I um, started my um, postdoc, which was about attitudes of vaccination, uh, I did see a lot more attention, both from uh, the academic community um, and uh, media as well. And you can just see the difference in interest between these two topics. Um, and, and that's what I was working on pre-COVID. So um, I was worried about measles outbreaks in mm. Europe and the US uh, just before. And um, I think it was actually an indication of what might be going wrong in our health systems that uh, preventable diseases were seeing outbreaks. Uh, so maybe that was also a warning sign uh, before we had COVID and the pandemic. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the neglected tropical diseases. I had a chance to mm -hmm. talk with Dr. Peter Hotez earlier in the year. He's in oh, Texas, yeah. um, and, and that was his area, um, has yeah. been his area. Uh, and he described a, a really fascinating and I think ultimately to me pretty depressing situation that um, in the world of uh, virology and developing vaccines, there's sort of superstar diseases, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then there's others that kind of get left behind. And he spent a lot of time fighting for funding, yeah. honestly, to try to take those on. It's not the way I conceptualized it. It shows how naive I was in my thinking about how vaccination, how vaccine development works. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been more attention from the global health community towards these big three diseases, um, malaria, HIV, AIDS, and um, uh, TB, tuberculosis. Uh, so that's that's been where... The, the donor community has has concentrated on and then you have also the private sector who um, are just not interested in any of these things and it's um, things like cancer and um, more profit driven uh, diseases that they tend to focus on where they have markets for uh, and that's just not the case with um, neglected tropical diseases. And you mentioned measles vaccine hesitancy in Europe. What have the I'm more familiar with the U.S. case. What has been the situation with that? So, um, I mean, we have a, a longer history with um, a scandal uh, about the MMR vaccine back in the 90s. And that's, that's a story that just doesn't really go away. So there are lingering fears about a connection with um, autism and the MMR vaccine. Uh, and that with the internet and with misinformation, that, that is something that does keep reappearing. Um, at least in, in the UK, the MMR uptake rates really have recovered um, from, from that uh, scare in the 90s. Uh, but you do see where there are small drops in uptake. You could have quite high overall uptake that can still cause outbreaks. Uh, especially from imported cases. And that's what you, you also saw in the US, even though you'd eliminated measles, um, it only takes one unvaccinated person to go abroad and then um, contract measles abroad and bring it back. I, so, I mean, even as you're describing that, it, it impresses upon me how fragile yeah. that, you know, the thing we take for granted, that those are just diseases of the past um, and that, but you're describing, you know, something, uh, a case uh, in the 1990s with some tenuous, unfounded connection ultimately to autism. And then that still percolates through the Internet and still resurfaces. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, you are relying on people's trust in the governments, in pharma companies, uh, in the health authorities and that's something that is ongoing and we'll see knocks to it so um, that's we, we just can't rely on having high vaccine uptake now to have it continue you really need to have very good uh, immunization services and um, 
also general relationships with um, the government and the political system uh, need to inspire confidence in the vaccinating publics. So you can even see um, un seemingly unrelated non-health topics affecting uh, people's mm. um, willingness to vaccinate. And um, possibly um, the Ukraine is one example where um, a difficult political environment and an unstable um, country can um, cause lower uptake. Are, are we seeing that there right now? Or have we seen that since the, since the war there has started? Yeah, um, it also was connected to um, a health system that um, really wasn't, hasn't been um, very suitable for the population. Um, in theory, vaccination, for example, should be free, but um, it's not in practice. And um, people find it hard to um, navigate the, the health system there. And um, it just leaves, leaves them, the population, quite vulnerable for misinformation, for rumours about vaccines as well. And um, there's, there's often, as we saw in the Ukraine, a, a trigger event where um, a, a child had um, uh, died and it was connected to the vaccine, but then later found out not to be. And mm. that, that kind of incident spreads fear and um, concerns about the safety about vaccines, which um, uh, do rely on this trust. You had a piece that you published in the conversation back in September or in COVID time about a decade ago. But, um, yes. And it was just as the vaccine rollouts were, were just, they were imminent. And there were some really great um, scholars, yourself included, writing just at that moment. Um, I thought really doing important um, due diligence that scholars can do to try to bring historical cases to bear on the present. I'm just going to read a sentence from that at, at, towards the end. You concluded, you're writing about the history of polio. You say the acceptance of vaccines is fragile. So when leaders promote their country's vaccine with clear political motivations, it can knock the public's confidence and draw intense scrutiny. As with the polio vaccine of the past, the world is watching. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, polio case? I think it's really interesting and instructive to our own time. Yeah, I think um, polio is is very interesting right from um, the trials that went on to find a polio vaccine and to to make sure it was safe and effective as we've witnessed the, the trials for COVID-19 vaccines. And um, what was interesting there was that the huge level of support for a vaccine, almost quite similar to what we've seen with COVID-19. Um, and then as, as a vaccine was being developed, um, there were shocks and uh, shocks in, with, to do with the safety of the vaccine. Um, and I think even I'm guilty of thinking once we have a vaccine, everything's going to be fine. Uh, but we, we know from past experience that um, you will face challenges and um, yeah, uh, at least with the polio case, it did result in regulatory changes to make sure that um, uh, better safety checks were carried out. Uh, and now we can be quite confident in our checks and balances that um, if there are safety signals um, being flagged up for a vaccine, that um, uh, there will be action taken. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen with COVID-19 vaccines. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Sam Vanderslot of the Oxford Vaccine Group today about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. Um, so maybe you can give us the landscape view uh, of the UK in terms of um, any part of it we want to start with. I think the vaccine development has been a pretty extraordinary story globally, um, right. but also the kinds of concerns that you're tracking in terms of uptake and hesitancy there in the UK? Yeah, um, I actually want to um, just have a note about uh, some of the other vaccinations that are, are going on, the routine childhood vaccinations, because actually sure. that's, that's normally what, um, what I'd be paying attention to. Mm. Uh, so what's unusual with um, 
COVID-19 vaccines are um, that you're vaccinating an adult population and starting from um, really the oldest going down. And um, that that hasn't been the case for previous research on vaccine attitudes. So we've been more concerned with what parents think and their decision making for children. Uh, so in relation to those childhood vaccines in the UK, it's, it's a bit surprising that um, uptake has been quite high. Uh, and that's continued through uh, the pandemic. And this is something that a lot of public health researchers were quite worried about, that these uh, this uptake might fall for for um, diseases like measles, and um, we might see outbreaks of those other diseases. And um, at least that's that's something to be quite pleased with that that uptake has remained. And it may be because um, uh, the threat of disease is top on on the top of people's minds. Mm. And uh, also, this is something that health providers have. Um, thought of as as a concern and they have wanted to remind people that it's still important to take those routine vaccines um and i can think I, uh, yeah sorry go on can i just pause on that for one second because that's a really fascinating yeah. wrinkle to this and and that concern would spring from the fact that parents would be worried about taking their children into clinical settings to be vaccinated or some sort of broader concern that they just are thinking about vaccines in a critical way for the first time in a long time. And so it raises concerns that maybe hadn't been there before, some combination of other elements. So um, the worry was mainly that uh, parents would be um, worried to bring their children into the clinical setting. And I think the arrangements were made to reassure parents that um, it would be safe to do so. And um, we've seen... um, quite a change in how doctors speak to patients in the UK. So um, uh, now it's become the norm to speak on the telephone, at least for uh, a first appointment. Um, Obviously things like vaccination, you will need to go in to get that done. Um, uh, But I think um, patients have been reassured that um, healthcare settings are are safe places, um, uh, at least in your um, local clinics. So that's been, that kind of data is reassuring, I suppose. But now we have households mm-hmm. where uh, parents are thinking about their kids, but at the same time, they're making their own decisions about their own health. Uh, and so how do you map that in terms of thinking about, you know, targeting populations and communication and public health uh, communication at this time? Who are you worried about? So um, we're more worried about the younger age groups now. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, it, it was it was quite obvious from early on that um, uh, there was a higher support from the older populations who saw a greater risk of um, having COVID. And now the persuasion has to be with younger populations why they need to be vaccinated. Um, and the reasons put forward for that are, well, it's, um, it's still a dangerous disease for younger people, uh, especially if we consider uh, long COVID as well, and we don't know the long-term effects of COVID. Um, it's really a, an unknown risk. Uh, and then it's uh, also protecting others and um, bringing an end to the pandemic. So these these are the messages um, that need to be um, got across, uh, but also allaying any fears about safety and um, addressing misinformation that's going around. And it's particularly difficult considering that the messaging throughout the pandemic has been young people can't get this, young people can't get this. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that discourse has been as strong in the UK, but certainly in the United States through last fall in the strong desire that I think is pretty broadly shared, but the strong desire for kids to get back in classrooms. um, Mm. Any pushback on that? Um, The Trump administration was very angry and felt like, you know, people were not paying attention to the science as they interpreted it and that it was, this is not a disease that young people can get. So I wonder how that plays in as, and of course, what is a young person that's subjective, but you know, this younger population hearing those messages all year, um, maybe they think, yeah, I can't get this. Yeah, I I think this is, um, this is really what's coming across and, um, it will have to be a different kind of messaging campaign for the younger groups. 
I, th I think we can't rely on um, the messages that have gone out before, uh, also in the UK. What kind of messaging works with younger populations in vaccine? Um, so th there are varying strategies. I think um, uh, what we've seen is um, the argument about protecting others d doesn't always have the effect that you think it will. So um, pe people do tend to think about their, their own individual benefit first, um, but connecting being vaccinated to ending the pandemic could be, could be a more powerful strategy and bringing life back to normal. And I think um, uh, almost showing um, uh, the outcome of being vaccinated in terms of what freedoms could be um, introduced would be, would be something that could work there. I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about how you how you do this kind of work, because I think the term mm -hmm. vaccine vaccination hesitancy is used and as if it's a it's an off or on a yes or no. Mm -hmm. But I my sense is that people have um, complicated and often contradictory ideas that they may even trust one vaccine and not another. Mm. Uh, for example, or as we're seeing with COVID-19, there's multiple brands out there. And so they're trying to gauge their confidence in one or another another yeah. brand. So mm. I guess my question to you is uh, almost a methods question. How do you go about finding and assessing someone's likeliness uh, to trust a vaccine or not and how that might change over time? Mm. I, I think we do face a, a methodology issue uh, within the vaccine attitudes um, uh, area. And this is because we're either relying on really big surveys, um, cross-country or national surveys, uh, or focus groups, um, individual interviews, and um, maybe more targeted interventions in psychology. This is something that's tried out. Um, but then, so you, you want to get somewhere in the middle of the two. And it's just more um, resource intensive and detailed work to be trying to do um, both of those micro and macro um, types of research together. And I think um, uh, this is where some of the more combined and mixed methods um, studies, I think, are really useful um, and where you're not just separating between topics like um, uh, what is the uptake, but linking that to people's attitudes as well. So um, you might see, for example, the um, public health epidemiology um, demographer researchers um, being more interested in that uh, larger scale um, attitudes and uptake um, uh, research. And then maybe more qualitative research like like me doing the, mm -hmm. the interviews and the focus groups. But I really think um, there needs to be more interdisciplinary work um, so that we're, we're combining our, our approaches and um, mm. uh, yeah, having overlapping questions that, um, uh, that, that would be useful. So um, that's, that's my hope for research in this area going forward. It's interesting. So those are often conducted separately. I mean, that, that you, you find teams of qualitative researchers who do these um, smaller sample size, really intense um, interviews. And then we've had this much larger public health surveys and the two don't, don't cross. Yes, you do tend to see that. And I think it is mm. um, uh, through the methodology and um, unless you're, you're getting um, bigger funded projects where there might be that opportunity to work across um, different fields. Uh, otherwise, individual researchers will stick to their um, methodological area. Um, there are exceptions, but um, uh, I I'd like to see more cross-working. Is this the kind of work that you're uh, engaged with? I mean, we're envision should we envision you as one of the people in one of those uh, focus group rooms talking to six or eight people about their experiences with vaccination? Yeah, I hope I can be involved more in these um, bigger uh, cross-disciplinary projects. Mm -hmm. And um, I know this is something um, at my university uh, that they're trying to do is um, 
across my um, my fa faculty, which is in uh, medical sciences, there, um, looking for all the researchers working on uh, this kind of similar topic uh, to see if um, uh, we can start working beyond our silos. Mm -hmm. Working beyond the silo <laughs> is, of course, we all know is a huge problem uh, in the areas that COVID touches. Um, and it's a, it's a problem. It's like a, it's a, a double-edged sword because on one hand, we like the specificity of the tools that people have developed in their particular disciplines. Um, it allows you to ask tough questions and get answers, but then sort of moving it up one level into sort of understanding how society is working or understanding sort of outlying cases, it makes it, it makes it harder. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to stick with this hesitancy issue a little bit. Maybe you can explain, because it's been on my mind a lot that, um, again, I don't think it's so clear that people are hesitant or not hesitant. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. who are hesitant still get vaccinated, right? Yeah, um, this is definitely something you can see when you look at um, country survey data, which is um, uh, trying to find out confidence levels in vaccination. And this doesn't neatly map onto uptake. And a lot of the time you do see that um, a country that has um, a high level of skepticism, like France, 40% uh, of the population being um, skeptical of vaccines and their safety, uh, importance and um, effectiveness. And they still have um, quite high vaccination rates in, in the 90%. Um, sometimes that's not always ideal. I mean, for measles, you want to have over 95% um, of vaccination rates. And that was partly why uh, France strengthened their um, mandatory laws about vaccination because they were worried about even these very small drops. It's a really extraordinary statistic you just quoted. So 40% of French people in France report that they have some concern about the vaccine. I don't know, are you referring to COVID-19 or previous uh, other cases? This this was previously, but similar figures have been um, noted for COVID nineteen as well, as especially with France being the most sceptical and the the least um, likely to have the COVID nineteen vaccine. A sceptical sceptical nation. I mean, it's really extraordinary to yeah. see. So that really captures it, right? And I and I wonder about that. And I don't know if you have the data to support this, but I wonder about stress in that situation. And this is just anecdotal, just me consuming news. But a lot of even major news figures, I was listening to Rachel Maddow the other day, and she was describing on air, she was talking about having received a dose, and then um, some of this reporting about AstraZeneca had come out. And, and mm -hmm. so she was monitoring and thinking about it, and she had some concern, but that it wasn't going to, ultimately, she came down on the side, she glad she'd done it. Mm -hmm. But I thought in her discussing that, she was talking about anxiety. Yeah. And is that the kind of thing you can account for in the studies that you're doing? So, um, for example, I think the uncertainty does um, create anxiety. And um, you, you do have reports of um, uh, when people are weighing up the differences um, between vaccines and, and trying to decide whether they, they want to vaccinate, even if they ultimately do, it's um, a difficult emotional process. Uh, but what we have seen is that um, uh, the confidence has improved um, as these vaccines have rolled out. Um, but with the exception of um, uh, questions about safety now, knocking uh, individual vaccines like the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and now the J&J &J vaccine. So, um, yeah, we, we'd see quite a variable picture Um as more information has come out and people are used to seeing vaccinations happening and they know people who are being vaccinated, I think this all contributes to having less uncertainty and um, being more willing to be vaccinated. Um, but then on the other hand, um, as, as we see um, safety concerns, um, as, as you might expect with, um, with a new vaccine, um, uh, this is an unprecedented um, uh, that does knock um, confidence in, in those individual vaccines, mainly. We don't see um, a spread across vac vaccines as such. 
I wonder how you assess this situation um, with the AstraZeneca or any of the other um, COVID vaccines where there's been sort of national level scrutiny mm. that's been applied in the United States. I just read that in, in Denmark, um, taking their own action to slow adoption of the AstraZeneca mm. vaccine. Are you worried about, about this or is this a sort of a something to be expected in the early fa phase of a vaccine rollout that there will be um, you know, side effects linked mm. or tenuously linked and that just has to work itself out. It, I'm worried because particularly the earlier cases you were talking about, mm. it seems like something can stick in the public's mind and then science can come along later and say, actually, those two are really not, there's no causality there, but it's too mm. late that somehow it's stuck into public consciousness. Are, are you worried about that with these COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, I, I think when there's um, a, a fear that gets out into the public domain and even if it's debunked or we find ways to manage that well. Um, for example, um, if, if, um, if a safety problem is found um, to a vaccine, um, you will see steps being taken to try to, to mitigate that as much as possible. Uh, but that doesn't mean that um, the original fear and concern will be out of the, the public domain. So that's, that is a major, major worry. I think what was also quite interesting were um, the different national coverages and um, also um, attitudes to uh, individual vaccines. And we've seen this with, um, with the kind of uh, quick polling that's been going on, um, what different nations think about um, individual vaccines. Mm -hmm. And uh, the UK did, um, did have a very high support for um, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine until quite recently. Um, but that was in, in opposition to other countries in Europe. And that depended on what um, our government was saying and how the media was reporting um, these events. But do you assess that in the in the realm of politics? I mean, with Brexit and everything else and the tensions that have been going on between the UK mm. and EU and individual countries. I mean, I don't want to make this too simple, but I do wonder about that, that maybe, you know, people in Europe who are already consuming a steady diet of, of uh, anti-UK or hostile news coverage, mm. um, that some, how could you how could they differentiate that from this AstraZeneca concern? That was definitely the rhetoric going on um, at the time. And I think um, the political environment is really affecting uh, public attitudes to vaccination um, and maybe much more than I would have expected. I, maybe mm. I should have expected this, but um, uh, it's, um, it's, I think in, in my field of research, we're often saying uh, vaccines are rarely just about vaccines themselves. They they seem to be able to engulf so many other issues within society and politics. Uh, and, and this is exactly what we've seen with the current pandemic. Having said that, you must be fascinated with the numbers being reported in the United States that I saw a story yesterday. 50% of Republican men in the U.S. saying that they won't they're hesitant or they won't be vaccinated um mm. and it's not even so much there i don't think it's uh, and again i mean those numbers are it's hard to parse that i'd need to, mm. to know more about the study but it's not always doesn't seem to be rooted in some idea that the vaccine doesn't work it's mm. something else it's just mm. i'm not going to get it or i don't want the government telling me what to do or, or any other mm. factors that are overlaid with this sort of uh, pro-trump republicans Hmm. I mean, this this is something that seems really quite different with uh, COVID-19. So um, there hadn't been many studies showing that your political orientation affected how you vaccinated. Uh, that, that really wasn't a strong current before COVID-19. But when you do have um, high profile politicians um, not being in favour of, say, health measures and public health measures in general, um, this does seem to be feeding into um, being against vaccination. And uh, a lot of the discourse about um, and debates about opposing vaccination has um, also stemmed from being opposed to wearing masks and, and other government control measures. 
So if people have deeper ideological commitments that override what um, public health officials are going to tell them, is mm. there is there a way through that? Is is that a matter of of time? I mean, asking somebody to give up their political identity, waiting for that to happen, for them to then lose their hesitancy for a vaccine. Mm. You may be waiting a long time with uh, some of these political commitments, at least in the United States. Yeah, I, th I think this will be really tricky, and um, it's it's likely to be an ongoing trend. I think um, uh, we're, we're not going to see the end to um, a political sway to being vaccinated. Uh, uh, I, I suppose um, before COVID nineteen happened, uh, one phenom phenomenon that we'd um, witnessed were uh, populist parties. Um, using uh, the idea of vaccination to, to win votes, really. So um, populist parties opposing um, mandatory vaccination and um, being in favour of um, uh, leaving these rules behind if, if a country did have those kind of coercive policies. Mm. You mentioned mandatory vaccination, and, and that's what's often used in these um, in the in the heated rhetoric, if it becomes politicized, that I'm talking about the United States here, that, well, um, you know, what's going to happen is people are going to be forced to carry a vaccine passport and the government will now intrude. So it, it comes from a political position that um, is critical of what the, is seen as a centralized, uh, overwhelming government presence in people's mm -hmm. lives and see the vaccine as just one more case in that. And and so maybe we can talk a little bit about the mandatory vaccination concern mm. as part of that. How common is it in the UK or other places that you study that vaccination becomes mandatory? Mm. So um, uh, what I think is quite unique is how much it um, comes up in, in conversation. Uh, at least uh, so in the UK, uh, we did have mandatory vaccination for smallpox about 200 years or so ago. And um, that didn't go down so well. Uh, and there was opposition to uh, those laws and um, uh, vaccination became recommended. Um, it, it did mean that when uh, more vaccines were introduced, uh, the government had to make more of a, an effort in the, the 40s and 50s to um, compel people to be vaccinated, but not through compulsory laws, but um, through public health um, campaigns and um, education and um, almost a marketing of vaccines. So that, that's been our history in the UK. And I think um, uh, even though mandatory vaccination is talked about, um, there aren't really strong indications that that will happen. Uh, there isn't a high public support um, for that kind of intervention and also uh, the public health establishment um, isn't very strongly behind it. So um, it seems to be something that politicians like to to bring up now and again as um, as an option that they'll they'll consider. And this has happened again with COVID-19, but um, it doesn't have much teeth to it. And I think um, uh, in, in the UK, it's quite unlikely. Uh, in other countries, I mean, we've seen now in in Europe, um, France, Germany, and Italy, they did introduce um, types of mandatory vaccination policies uh, against um, uh, out the outbreaks of measles that were happening in the last um, few years. So uh, their policies were mainly about strengthening existing um, uh, types of mandatory policies that were already there. Uh, with the exception of um, Germany, which was only targeting one one vaccine, so for measles. So um, the idea that we might have COVID nineteen mandatory vaccines ac across the board in many countries, I think that's that's quite unlikely. Uh, and whether whether a government wants to get into that territory at the moment, I I think. Um, that's something that they really have to consider quite long and long and hard about. Uh, and yeah, the public reaction is something that um, they, they will be worried. Um, is that something that uh, legally speaking could be done even in the UK? I mean, this is a matter of 
uh, in the United States, it would be it would be handled at the state level. Mm. And, and mm. even there, of course, it's, it's still a matter of uh, legal dispute as to under what conditions a state. I mean, there can be extraordinary cases where the state can ex can um, mm. use you know its powers um, to make that happen. But as you say, I mean, history doesn't bear that out in in most mm. cases. But can it be done just as a matter of strictly legally speaking in the UK if they wanted to? Yeah, uh, and it's really um, across across all countries that there, mm. there isn't um, there isn't really a strong legal reason why that couldn't happen. Uh, so I think a lot of the discussions have been about um, whether it would be legal for employers uh, to introduce a mandatory vaccination policy, and. Um, also targeting maybe healthcare workers, but um, to introduce some mandatory vaccination law, that is that is something that um, governments can do if if they wished. Um, the conversation here in, uh, uh, in the or conversation in the United States has been a lot about universities. Um, you know, again, sort of here we come back to you know younger populations. Um, people who might have taken it on board that they hey, don't really need to be vaccinated because I can't get this. I think um, there's been one university, high profile university that's said you have to have the vaccine yeah. before you come back. Others um, have been very reluctant to do that for the many reasons that we, we've just been discussing. Do, do you think that's how it's going to play out almost in a case by case basis? It does seem to be um, that way. I think if, um, if there isn't a, a government action um, or policy, uh, individual organizations and private companies that we've seen with um, airlines announcing that they'll ask their passengers to be vaccinated like Qantas. Uh, I think they will take action themselves because they see um, asking for people to be vaccinated as part of um, uh, being able to carry on with their business mm -hmm. and also as a way of protecting their staff and their their customers, so um, that that's likely to be something that we'll see more of. But say, if you would, a, a little bit about the immunity passport or the vaccine mm. passport. It's again, it's one of these phrases. It got loose in the media, and immediately, I think, before people even discussed what it was, it became mm. intensely polarized. And people said, "I'll never carry a vaccine passport," and others said, "No, you're going to carry it. In fact, you already have to in certain places." Mm. Uh, to unravel that for us a little bit. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The the vaccine passports um, became an issue before they were even an issue. And it, it's it's one of these topics that um, is ripe for discussion about the ethical implications. And it's pitting the individual liberties against the, the common public health imperatives. So um, there's a good story in there, and I think that might be why there's been so much interest in uh, in um, vaccine passports. Uh, but you're also right when you say um, this is already existing in um, various forms, and um, what a lot of organisations would want, and um, also maybe governments would be to make sure this is standardised and um, is enabled through technology to, to make it easier to use. Um, for me, I think the distinction seems to be more strongly between uh, a within country vaccine passport and across countries. And uh, within countries, that's gonna be more of having access to services and, um, and public life, uh, while across countries, it's, it's gonna be more for travel. Uh, my worry actually for um, vaccine passports across countries is that um, this may constrain supply to lower income countries of, of vaccines if travellers are prioritised and there's just a higher demand for travellers to be vaccinated. And it's not also not considering um, the plight of, say, refugees and migrant workers um, and asylum seekers who might find it harder to access something like a vaccine passport. So I think um, the global ethics of um, such a passport are more of a concern for me. I think that's what I'd um, see as a major issue that needs to be resolved uh, as these might come out. I mean, your discussion of that 
It brings me back to your earlier points about your own dissertation work and then the obituary that I read at the beginning, David Katzenstein, um, and his later part of his career where he left the U.S. and moved to Zimbabwe, uh, and he wasn't working on uh, AIDS vaccine per se, but it is in this issue about, you know, so much of the discussion around the vaccination rollout has been about Europe and about mm -hmm. the United States, North America. Um, what do you predict? I mean, I guess let me start with a broader question is, is mm -hmm. um, you know, wh what is the ethical consideration uh, that we should be having, the conversation we should be having about that, that there will be an uneven distribution of vaccination, of vaccine around the world. How do you how do you approach that? Because I mean, it's, it's going to be uneven. We get that. But after a certain period of time, it will be available broadly in wealthier countries. Should we, how do we approach that question when other countries may not have access? Mm. Or as you said, migrant workers or refugees may not have access. Mm. I think that there are quite a lot of aspects in there. I suppose what angers me quite a bit is how... Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that we have vaccines and um, uh, the scientific endeavor that has produced vaccines, but um, the, the fact that they're not all not-for-profit, um, I think um, needs to be called out more and um, shouldn't be seen as the norm during a pandemic. So um, there's only two, vaccines, the AstraZeneca Oxford one and um, the J&J that are not-for-profit um, while the pandemic is ongoing. And for other companies to be having um, really huge profits while we're facing um, so many deaths from COVID-19, um, I think um, there should should be more public outcry about this. It shouldn't be seen as this is this is the system that we have, and um, this is the way that we got these vaccines when many of them were publicly funded. Uh, actually, I saw a preprint today which um, had found the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was ninety seven percent publicly funded, mm. which. Um, yeah, when you see that that figure, you realise that it it, sh it shouldn't be um, seen as normal that um, pharmaceutical companies are getting uh, really sky high profits from COVID nineteen vaccines. So, yeah, that's that's one area that I think is very unfair. I think um, there are many other aspects in the distribution and um, equitable access to to vaccines that you could also call out upon. Has there been much success historically about uh, raising this kind of ethical concern to drive public opinion to demand that mm. vaccines be made available in countries that are not um, funding their own national vaccine programs? I think probably the best example is the um, antiretrovirals for HIV AIDS. And um, having those become available at affordable prices in lower middle income countries uh, was really a hu huge step forward. Uh, but it was just the, the time that it took for that to, to happen. Um, we don't want to be waiting um, 10 years, 15 years for COVID-19 vaccines to be accessible by everyone and possibly on an ongoing basis. So. Um, this is something that needs to be be addressed um, right now, and I think um, there should be, uh, yeah, more of a, a public call out of um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I'm glad you, that you you raised it and that you framed it that way because there's been this slippage to to talk about vaccines to go from COVID nineteen to actually talk about mm -hmm. the companies and the brands and. Uh, to not discover, as you said, you know, 97% of the funding for J&J &J vaccine, for example, come, or uh, did you yeah. say AstraZeneca? Uh, yeah, 97% yeah. of that is public. So you're still, it, but in, even with that level of understanding, we're still sort of stuck with a nationalism problem and a kind of a, a you know, an idea that, yeah, 
the United States or the UK. We develop these vaccines. These are ours. Mm-hmm. And if other countries need them, they can get their own. Or doesn't the UN do that? And, and I'm mm-hmm. characterizing an attitude. Um, I don't know how broadly it's shared, but I have, I've heard that discourse that it, um, mm-hmm. even if you get past the idea uh, that it's private, you say, yeah, it's public, it's a public good, but public good for us and not for poorer mm-hmm. countries, they should get their own. Yeah. Uh, probably one aspect there that I, I think um, sh- should be changing um, sooner rather than later is the idea that surplus vaccines can go to poorer countries. And I think um, this is just not a fair way of um, managing the vaccine distribution. I think um, we need to see more commitment to um, providing those, those vaccines now and not just when we're really sure that we don't need them. Because um, otherwise we're, we're basically sitting on vaccines, we're hoarding them. And it's not going according to need, which um, uh, especially in countries where very high risk individuals, frontline health workers aren't being vaccinated. Um, I, I think um, those, those need to be the priority now. Is the discourse of universal human rights useful here? I mean, the idea that a frontline health worker in Zimbabwe or in India should have the same rights or any, any person for that matter should have the same rights as someone in the United States or Canada. I mean, to me, it makes sense, but there's a lot of things that make sense to me that don't pan out when it comes to these kind of discussions. It could be useful. I I think actually from my um, research on neglected tropical diseases the argument that then went on to work in the advocacy campaign was to make the economic development case for mm. um, funding uh, action against those diseases and not the human rights um, really? packaging or angle. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's, that's not something that w- would um, maybe inspire publics and uh, might inspire action. But um, uh, from that example, um, maybe it's going to be more about opening economies and making sure that we're not um, importing cases and having variants um, that that could be more persuasive. We're almost up on time here in my discussion with Sam Vanderslot about vaccines and vaccination. I um, wonder if you just could leave us with some of the things that are going to be on your mind as a researcher uh, going forward here in these next few months. It just occurred to me the other day, I mean, we're right on the cusp of a, uh, a situation where billions of vaccine doses are going to be distributed in a relatively short period of time. There's so many aspects of, of that from a research perspective. I mean, to, to name just one, there's a student here where I am at KAIST who's considering the environmental implications mm. of that. For example, the syringes and all the plastics and everything that goes goes into that. I mean, there's so much going on just with the supply chain and environment, not to mention hesitancy issues that we've been discussing here today. Mm. So you can't tell us everything you're working on, but what are some of the things or maybe the next thing that you're going to be watching for and researching in the coming months? Oh, so um, I think we did talk a, a lot about um, the topics that I'm, I'm carrying on working on. Um, I'm quite interested in um, social media discussions about um, uh, vaccination and um, how we might learn from those about um, uh, what kind of misinformation is circulating and also what people's fears and concerns are. So that's, that's one thing that I've been working on. Also, um, media representation of uh, dif- the different vaccines, um, uh, safety concerns or um, other topics of interest um, and how that's being portrayed through the media. So, yeah, I think those are the, the two areas that I'm, I've been concentrating on for the um, yeah foreseeable future. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and join me in my next COVID calls episode on April 19th at 5.30 p.m. I'll be talk 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking with Hannah Tesler and Mira Choi about anti-Asian racism in the COVID-19 pandemic. And they'll be discussing some research that they have that's, that's just come out on that. So please do join me for that in the next COVID calls. And let me thank my guest today, Sam Vanderslot, for um, 
really wide-ranging conversation about vaccination and vaccine hesitancy. Thanks for the work, that work you're doing and your colleagues, and thanks for taking time uh, late at night there in the UK to talk to us about it. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you.